Hello and welcome to Suite 212, putting the arts in their social, cultural, political and historical context here on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I'm bringing you a show about how writers in France, as well as the United Kingdom, became involved with the Commune of Paris during its brief existence from March to May 1871, and how they responded to its brutal suppression throughout the rest of the 19th century. Joining me today to discuss this are Owen Holland and Bertrand Tett. Owen Holland is a teaching fellow in 19th century English literature at University College London, having previously been a career development fellow in Victorian and modern literature at Jesus College, Oxford, between 2016 and 18. His first book, William Morris's Utopianism, Propaganda, Politics and Prefiguration, was published by Palgrave in 2017. It forms part of a new book series, Palgrave Studies in Utopianism, edited by Professor Geoffrey Clays. He's currently writing his second book on cultural responses to the Paris Commune in Britain between 1871 and 1914, which is under contract with Rutgers University Press. More widely, he's interested in critical theory, particularly cultural materialism. He is also the editor of the Journal of William Morris Studies. Hi there, it's very nice to be here. It's um, it's Greg Clace who's the editor of the Palgrave book. Ah, well, thank you. No matter. Um, so Bertrand Tett was born in Montpellier and studied there and at Sorbonne before doing his PhD at the University of Manchester, where he's now Professor of Cultural History, having taught there since 2000. He began his career as a historian of urban sociology and later moved into the history of medicine and sexuality, and is particularly interested in the history of humanitarian aid. A prolific author, he's published plenty on 19th century France and its colonies, as well as on Victorian Britain, Walter Benjamin, Henry Mayhew, and many other subjects. Bertrand has been editor of the European Review of Modern History since 1994, and is executive director of the Humanitarian and Conflict Response Institute, which he co-founded in 2009. So, Owen, Bertrand, welcome to Suite 212. Thank you very much, Juliet. Um, it's the European Review of History rather than Modern History, but that's fine. <laughs> One error in each. That's, no, there uh, that's is such great. a thing, and I don't want to, I don't want to pretend to be the other <laughs> journal. <laughs> okay, well that's uh, that's an important correction. I mean, I think before I go any further, as well, I just want to share with our audience a little anecdote of um, of studying with Bertrand at the University of Manchester uh, back in two thousand and two. Um, we were about to take a class and. We got a knock on the door from a security guard saying the students are all occupying the classrooms in protest against the Iraq war. And Bertrand said, so what? And the security guard said, well, if you don't all get out now, your room's gonna fill up with students. And Bertrand just pointed uh, at the students in the room. Um, and the security guard said, yes, but they won't be your students. And Bertrand said, I think they'd be quite interested in a lecture about the Commune of Paris, uh, at which point the security guard said, all right, up to you and uh, and just left us alone. As it turned out, no one else came into the room, but um, the class has somewhat stuck with me, as I think you're going to see. Um, so we'll go into more detail about the Commune during the course of the show. But for those who aren't familiar with it, I just want to start with an outline of the Commune, which lasted for just two months in 1871, but nonetheless reverberated throughout European political and intellectual culture for the following decades. So the Commune came about at the end of the Franco-Prussian War, which resulted in the end of the Second Empire and the establishment of Germany as a nation state provoking the war in part to divert from France's internal problems, including a wave of strikes in 1869-70 and the liberalization of Napoleon III's dictatorship 
the French drastically overestimated the strength of their own army and underestimated that of Prussia. The Prussians rapidly invaded France and took Paris under siege in September 1870, winning the war when the city surrendered on the 28th of January 1871. William Wilhelm I was proclaimed German Empire at the Palace of Versailles, with the uh, long-disputed territory of Alsace-Lorraine on the border signed over as part of the peace treaty. There was considerable resentment against the continued presence of German troops outside Paris, as well as towards the French government. And in March 1871, Parisian workers and members of the National Guard rebelled and established the Paris Commune, which Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels later cited as the first example of the dictatorship of the proletariat, correcting their communist manifesto to say how the Commune demonstrated that the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machine and deploy it for their own purposes. The name commune referred to administrative units, but also carried ideas of community and could be found in the utopian socialist writings of the mid 19th century. It also harked back to the French Revolution and the commune that was established in Paris in 1789, and even further to rebellions of the Middle Ages. The commune of 1871 grew out of the polarized politics of the Prussian siege when starvation was widespread, rationing commonplace and people were radicalized. The revolutionary socialist Louis-Auguste Blanqui attempted a coup in October 1870, and over the next few months, tensions emerged between the loyalist military and the more radical National Guard, which erupted when the newly elected government of the Third Republic sent troops to disarm the Guard. Uh, riots broke out and the soldiers of the National Guard refused to accept the authority of the French chief executive, Adolphe Thiers. They seized control of Paris and attempted to start an independent administration as the Thiers government fled to Versailles. The National Guard held central committee elections in March, which returned a mixture of moderates and radicals, but not Blanqui, who'd been arrested a few days before. The commune's political program was improvisatory and chaotic, with a focus on secularization, universal free schooling and better working conditions. They remitted rents owed during the siege, abolished night work in bakeries and interests on debt, and allowed workers to run abandoned businesses. Beset by leadership problems that exacerbated this lack of organization, the commune lasted just two months and was really unprepared for the Tiers government moving to recapture the city. On the 21st of May, 1871, the bloody week began as the French military entered Paris. They easily overcame the communards barricades and killed thousands of Parisians resulting in a massacre at the Père Lachaise Cemetery, where a memorial to the fallen communard still stands. Hundreds of prisoners were executed, many more exiled, some to French colonial prison camps and others across Europe, and especially to London, which we'll be talking about a bit later. Culture and cultural symbolism was vital to the commune. The red flag and the Internationale became socialist icons as a result of its brief existence. People invaded public spaces, set up outdoor theatres and concert venues, and destroyed the column at the Place Vendôme, erected by Napoleon I to honour victories of the French army. The artist Gustave Courbet had previously proposed this removal. He set up a federation of artists, demanded the reopening of the Louvre, called for an annual exhibition free of government interference, and the abolition of state art institutions. On Courbet's suggestion, Thiers House in Paris was destroyed, and Thiers' art collection requisitioned, although the director of the Louvre refused to accept it. Artists maybe were more prominent than writers during the period of the Commune itself, uh, and some of France's leading writers proved hostile to the Commune, as we're about to discuss. But over the following decade, 
decades, writers became central to how the commune was remembered and how it influenced future radical governments, things that we'll explore or at least touch on in today's discussion. So that's an overview of the commune, um, quite a whistle-stop tour of it, I think. Um, but I want to start talking now about the place of writers and writing and maybe print culture more generally um, around the time that the commune was established. So Owen, maybe you'd like to, to come in here um, and talk about uh, Jules Valez and, um, and the print culture more widely. Sure, yeah, not, not only Valez, but maybe also just briefly something about this question of duration, because as you were saying, the commune only lasted two months, March to May 1871. Walter Crane, a British artist and, and poet, wrote about the commune as being short-lived to act and teach. But if we think about the commune in terms of its very short duration, we might be doing it something of a disservice because we could reframe that question of the commune's relationship to time by asking about whether it was the return of something old or the beginning of something new, the birth of something new. Was it a harking back to revolutionary traditions from 1792 and 1848? Or was it, as we might discuss with regard to Marx, was it the beginning of a new modality of revolutionary struggle, a new kind of struggle. But if we were to just nudge that question of duration back into the late 1870, the year 1870, then the print culture that, that feeds into the commune really gets going with the establishment of, of the Third Republic. So when Napoleon III exits the scene because of these devastating military defeats in the war against Prussia, Third Republic comes into being and all kinds of radical figures who had been opposed to the Second Empire but hadn't really been able to voice their opposition are all of a sudden able to start, start up newspapers again, start up publishing ventures. So one might think of um, Blanqui's paper, the, the, the revolutionary militant and barricade fighter Blanqui's uh, Le Patreon Danger, uh, a, a newspaper and also a club. Um, Eugène Vemerche starts up Le Père Duchesne, and of course both of these names, Patrion Danger and Père Duchesne, are names that are borrowed from the revolutionary scene of the 1790s. You talked about Valles, well yes, his newspaper Le, Le, Le Cri du Peuple, um, one of the most popular widely circulated newspapers during, um, during the Commune, but it's part of a constellation of, of little kind of publishing outlets that are there fulfilling a kind of propagandistic function, intervening into the political space. And it's a disciplined kind of writing, isn't it? We wouldn't necessarily think of someone like Valles in terms of this idea of discipline, because he's a kind of dissolute novelist, isn't he? Um, but the work of bringing out a daily or weekly newspaper, if you just think about that for a moment, it, it requires a certain kind of discipline. You've got to get the material ready, you've got to get the copy ready and get it out onto the newsstands. So there's a kind of discipline of routine in the print culture, but then there's also a kind of political discipline that goes along with it. So yeah, um, we, we could just open up that question of duration by taking it slightly backwards and thinking about how that that print culture really creates the discursive space for the idea of the commune to re-enter the political scene. Uh, I'll pick, uh, thank you, Owen. I think that's very important. The, the, the duration point is extremely important. 
um, because the Commune of Paris cannot be understood if you don't actually realize its language, its idiom, is uh, borrowed from the French Revolution to a large extent and the revivals thereof. So there is a very strong dimension of uh, a rootedness about the Commune. But the Commune is not simply the Commune of Paris. And I think this is something that has tended to fade, but is, is significant because in Paris, you find all sorts of people in the, during the Commune. You find, uh, you find people who, are, who have fled uh, repression in, in Poland, you find people who are uh, coming to, who came to France to defend the republican ideals during during the second phase of, of the war against the Prussians. You find a lot of provincial French people, and that's because in the rest of France, before the Commune of Paris, there had been commune-like insurrections in a variety of places, um, which didn't tend to last very long, but which pressed many of the same political views. So that's really quite, so there is a, a greater geographical spread to the commune, albeit asynchronous. It's not uh, taking place at the same time as the commune of Paris. The, the other communes are repressed or negotiated out of existence before the commune of Paris itself. But, but there is, so in other words, it's not an isolated Parisian movement. I think it's important to keep that in mind. The second point that, that to, to add to, to what Owen just said, I think is very important to, to realize that people like Jules Vallès were indeed repressed as writers in terms of their politics, but they weren't repressed as in terms of their writing skills. They had spent an awful lot of time writing for the mainstream newspapers. They had written, for example, for uh, uh, La Liberté or other newspapers that were allowed under the, the Second Empire. And there was a genre, in, uh, a very interesting genre in, in the second, at the end of the Second Empire called La Petite Presse, the, the small newspapers. And La Petite Presse was typically the place where radical young um, writers will cut their teeth writing uh, literary critique or artistic critique, which hidden, which carried within it social, political criticism, and was profoundly political, but in but disguised uh, and um, very much uh, in, in expressed in a light-hearted way. And that's kind of interesting because th these are these are these are absolutely professional. They, they, are, they are remarkable um, writers, and they are incredibly prolific. Because you're, you're absolutely right when you say the discipline, Owen. Uh, when you realize that many of these newspapers are actually publishing the writings of a handful of individuals, and, and they are they are several pages long, so there are thousands of words have to be uh, written on a daily basis. Yeah, um, I think that's really interesting, sort of set up the intellectual climate around the commune and the publishing climate. Uh, one of the really interesting things here, and one reason why I wanted to frame the conversation in this way through writing, is that mid-19th century France has an astonishing literary culture. It's, it's an incredible cradle of, um, of, of literary writing uh, as well as political writing. Um, and there were a lot of very prominent writers at the time, um, people who were really huge names like Charles Baudelaire and Gustave Flaubert and Victor Hugo and George Sand, um, some of whom interacted quite a lot with this this print culture, you know, for example, Charles Baudelaire uh, wrote these uh, feuilletons, these, these short pieces uh, that were collected 
in Paris spleen and these sort of observations about life in the city. Um, but not many of them had an awful lot to say about the commune. And some of them, um, who you might have expected to be more supportive of the commune, uh, turned out not to be. Um, Victor Hugo is an interesting example here. He shared a lot of political principles with the, the commune. Um, you know, he advocated the abolition of the death sentence, universal free education and freedom of the press. Um, but he he didn't support the commune. And I think maybe for some of our listeners will be familiar with writers who advocate radical policies in principle, but recoil from them when they are offered in practice. Um, so Hugo was quite sceptical about the commune, um, as was Gustave Flaubert and indeed George Sand, which is maybe slightly more surprising um, given given her involvement with the revolutionary activity in 1848, her support of that. Um, Sand wrote to Flaubert and Alexandre Dumas. Um, she didn't say much about the commune other than to call it an ugly adventure with its sort of nominal leaders insufferable or imbeciles. Um, and Flaubert responded by calling the 18th of March, 1871, the day that the commune was established, uh, stupid convulsions from a destructive mob. Um, Anatole France, who ended up winning the Nobel Prize, but isn't, I don't think, as widely read now, uh, went further. He called the Commune a committee of assassins, a band of hooligans, a government of crime and madness. Um, so a lot of the sort of more established writers were either sceptical about the Commune or outright hostile to it. And I wondered if either of you had any thoughts on kind of why that was. Well, I... Um... There are several thoughts. I mean, uh, you can follow up. I mean, the first one is that the commune of Paris is easier to identify in hindsight uh, than it was uh, in, in, in its own time. It's a very uh, fractious, divided, creative, com um, tormented, but never a fully settled political project. So I think that's one one dimension is that it has all the creativity of, of a rebellion, of a revolt, and it has also all the dissonant voices of, of, um, of a mob. And uh, for people who are profoundly anchored in a history of regular Parisian insurrections, and this is something to keep in mind, this is the, this is the, for somebody like Victor Hugo, this is not the first revolution he's like that. And it's not the first uh, barricade um, moment. Um, so, it, for 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 people like Victor Hugo, there is a um, he cannot find in the Commune of Paris uh, a Lamartine. He cannot find um, the kind of intellectual leadership uh, that was dominant, say, in 1848. So, so that's one. I don't want to to excuse their judgment necessarily, but I want to explain it a little bit. We're talking about generations as well. I mean, these are these are men and women in their uh, second half of their, their life, at the very least, um, comfortably bourgeois. And there's an awful lot about the Commune of Paris that is opposed to the bourgeoisie. And a third dimension, which I think matters a lot, is that the scale of the defeat is such. And the Commune of Paris is taking place under siege by the German army for a large part of its uh, territory. I mean, the, the entire east of Paris and the south of Paris is still controlled 
uh, by the Prussians and their allies, or the German army, because uh, Germany is in the process of unifying. But the German army is therefore around Paris. So to, to actually indulge in what many of them perceive to be a reenactment, a bad reenactment of the French Revolution seemed uh, a puerile project uh, doomed to failure and a dangerous uh, expression of immaturity. So it's very interesting that the word convulsion came in and uh, you mentioned it. It is the title of Maxime Ducamp's uh, multi-volume um, study of the Commune of Paris. And people like Maxime Ducamp, reactionary, uh, right-wing uh, writer, nevertheless, interestingly, uh, pay a lot of attention to the minutiae. He collects, for example, um, he collects all the, the, the leaflets. He collects the, if you want, he pays attention to street art. He pays attention to, to the, the, the more ephemeral manifestations of the Commune of Paris because he perceives it to be um, a historical moment, but perhaps the, the closing chapter of a revolutionary history. And I think that's very much the spirit in which many of those uh, writers are, are looking at it. They're considering the Commune of Paris as a degenerate uh, form of revolutionary um, history. And I might um, chime in there with Hugo, perhaps more of a moderate Republican, but someone who was willing to um, offer to open up his home in Brussels to communard fugitives, which then put the Belgian government on his case and told him to leave Belgium. But he was also someone who was consistently advocating for an amnesty for communard refugees. And he's, of course, one of these figures who'd been associated with opposition to Napoleon III and the Second Empire. And so the establishment of the Third Republic was a moment of of hope for him. And I suppose he would see the commune as something that would be interfering and inter in, in, interrupting that process of uh, a third republic coming into being. Um, but because he is this, this this is perhaps a bit of a digression on, on Hugo, but um, because he is this, this figure who uh, would be quite amenable to the third republic, he gets a rather kind of big state funeral. There's a lot of state pageantry associated with his funeral. And because I know more about the British context, really, that makes me think across in a slightly tangential way, the, the, the funeral bit, to a comparable figure in Britain like Tennyson. Very, very different politics, obviously. But because he's the laureate, he gets a lot of, he gets a very big public funeral in 1892. And I am coming on to link this to your question about why writers might be opposed to the commune, Juliet. But one of the, the figures who writes an obituary of, of Tennyson after his, his funeral in, in 1892 is a, uh, a, a critic and a, a novelist called Edmund Goss. And he worries that the death of Tennyson and the kind of cultural authority that might be associated with a figure like Tennyson might lead into producing what Goss calls a commune in literature. So in 1892, almost two decades after the fall of the commune, the commune still stands as a kind of byword for Goss as a threat to hierarchical conception of culture based in a notion of kind of tradition and someone, the laureate like Tennyson sort of sitting at the top of it. So there is this sense for writers who esteem a certain conception of the literary and a certain conception of the cultural that the communards were just barbarians, right? You know, there were lots of these 
barbarians at the gates really, you know, stormed the citadel of bourgeois civilization and taken over the capital of the 19th century. And this partly had to do with circulation of fake news about the communards that they were, they were supposed to have um, burned the Louvre. And this turned out not to be true, but there were various people, including Nietzsche and, and Ruskin who got very worried about that. And it kind of set a certain, sealed a certain reputation that the communards had in certain circles as, as cultural barbarians, Philistines, really. So this is why writers, writers of a certain stamp would want to demonize the commune. Uh, there is, there's a, a, an interesting anecdote that, that summarizes, if you're on the, the, this is, um, a, and it involves the painter Courbet, who was one of a few established intellectual figures who actually rallied to the, with, with the commune. It, it is the destruction of Napoleon's column, uh, which the column itself is a, is a large bronze monument, which is now reestablished in the middle of Paris. And, but that bronze monument was itself a pastiche or a copy of Trajan's column in Rome. So by bringing down the column of Napoleon, unwittingly perhaps, the, the communards are also bringing down classical civilization, civilization full stop. And I think there is a strong sense that uh, the communards are perceived to be the, indeed the barbarians that used to be at the gate, but have now seized power in Paris. And, and the fact that the commune started from the margins of Paris, I mean, it's very important that it starts in Montmartre. It starts on the, on, on the edge of the city where the slums are. Um, that this is actually, um, if you want, the revolt of, um, of the people who are on the outside of civilized Paris. And finally, at the last week of May 1871, uh, the, the fires that devastated central Paris, accidental or voluntary, some were voluntary, probably, but most were accidental. I mean, we're talking about a city which is lit by gas. And if you start uh, shooting um, guns in a city lit by gas, you're going to have a lot of uh, wildfires. Um, that system, that destruction of a, a classical part of Paris, you know, the very central part and some of the central institutions of Paris um, really um, completely sealed the reputation of uh, the commune for an, a number of observers, not all by, me, by all means, but a number of bourgeois uh, and middle-class uh, observers of the commune. Well, yeah, um, that's all really, really interesting. Something I wanted to pick up on um, is the way both of you have talked about this as a generational conflict. And of course, um, probably the most famous uh, writer and poet to um, display any enthusiasm for the commune at all was Arthur Rambeau, who at the time is 17, uh, also uh, famously wrote all of his poetry in his, his teens, and he saw the Prussian bombardment of Paris and passed through the Prussian lines to get back into Paris in March 1871. Um, he apparently wrote a communist constitution on his return, although this has never been found but um i wondered if there's anything more to say here about rambau and sort of younger writers maybe and and how they responded to the commune well arthur rambaud is um i mean it would just you know there was a recent controversy about whether rambaud should should enter or not the pantheon um the, the monument to um establishment uh, figures in, in, in the French uh, national commemoration, the equivalent of, of Westminster Abbey. 
Um, Arthur Rimbaud uh, was, of course, very, very young then, but it's, it's interesting that his first poem, the poem that sort of breaks is, opens up a lot of doors amongst intellectuals in Paris, including Paul Verlaine's door, is uh, Le Dormeur du Val, which is a, a poem about uh, a dead soldier uh, resting or, or lying in, in a ditch. And it's a very, very beautiful and poetic uh, evocation of death and defeat. So Arthur Rimbaud is on a is on a particular trajectory of his own. I mean, this is a, a very is not really significant during the Commune of Paris, but he certainly belongs to that generation of provincial uh, Frenchmen who come to Paris because Paris is uh, uniquely. Um, cited as the center of all cultural uh, endeavors. And, and I think you, it, it is a very specific uh, dimension of France in the 19th and 20th century that uh, Paris is almost monopolizing any form of cultural production. And to exist outside of Paris is not to exist really. So I mean, it's very difficult to, 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 to ignore that fact. And for, for so for him, the movement to Paris during the war, he actually does it in the middle of, a, of the conflict, is a gesture of solidarity and a gesture of engagement. And, and this, this is something you find elsewhere. It's not because, because the Commune of Paris is not a French phenomenon. It is an international phenomenon. I think this is something that Owen will, will discuss more. But, but it's actually international in its membership and its leadership. Yes, some of its main generals have names like Dombrovsky. You know, you have really an, a, a profound uh, international dimension to it. And that includes, of course, um, its impact on the arts. Yeah. Um, you're listening to Suite 212 here on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes. And today I'm talking to Owen Holland and Bertrand Tett about how writers interacted with and responded to the Commune of Paris of 1871. So we've just talked about how writers during the Commune and perhaps immediately after uh, responded to the events around them. Uh, I'd like to move the conversation on now for the second half of the show. I would like to talk about um, how writers responded to the aftermath of the commune. And I think the most obvious place to start here is uh, Karl Marx's famous pamphlet, The Civil War in France. Um, I have read this, but a really long time ago. So um, maybe I'll hand over to uh, maybe Owen. I don't know if you would like to talk about um, that piece of Marx's writing. It's one of my favorite pieces of his writing. Um, sure, yeah. I mean, I hesitate to think we can do justice to it in the in the time that we have. Um, but Marx was not, you know, he wasn't a participant uh, in the commune, he was an observer. Uh, he was corresponding with various militants of the International Working Men's Association, getting his news about the commune, but but he was he was in London. And this is where the pamphlet that you mentioned, the Civil War in France was, was published. But Picking up on that question that we discussed earlier about duration and whether the commune was the return of something old or the beginning of something new, well, it's it's Marx who perhaps most forcefully puts the case for seeing the commune as the inauguration of a new modality of revolutionary struggle. So he talks about the commune as being the political form at last discovered through which to work out the economical emancipation of labor. 
and he thinks about it as being the initiation of the social revolution of the 19th century. So there's something formally innovative for Marx about the commune. He doesn't want to emphasize the fact that there were some communards, neo-Jacobins, uh, Blancists, who were thinking about that longer history of, of um, you know, the French revolutionary tradition. For Marx, this is really the first proletarian revolution. I mean, there had been workers' uprisings before, but this for Marx is the first time that workers seize power and form a government of, of their own. So for Marx, there's almost a way in which form exceeds content here, because although there are various legislative policies that the communards might pass, you talked about some of them in your, in your introduction, Juliet, for Marx, it's, it's the, the, the commune as form that matters here and, and the novelty of the commune as a, as a workers' government. But he's also wanting to think about a, a kind of shifting paradigm for how we might think about, um, well, the, the, the transition from a, a, a war between nations, the Franco-Prussian War, conflict, violent conflict between nations, moving into a different kind of antagonism, an antagonism between social classes. We move from a national war to a civil war between classes, right? And so Marx is also saying towards the conclusion of the civil war in France that after the most tremendous war of modern times, namely the Franco-Prussian War, the conquered and conquering hosts suddenly decide they're going to fraternize with each other for the purpose of the common massacre of the proletariat. So he's thinking about a kind of ruling class closing of ranks here. They've just been fighting a war against each other uh, under the banner of kind of national antagonism, but now they're going to sort of cease those hostilities in order to uh, vanquish this more fearsome threat of a, a, you know, a, a, an international or transnational um, uh, proletarian um, insurgency. I think if we can, I, can I pick can I pick up from this? I think it's um, if we want to understand the commune, we've got to realize that it, it draws on, on on different on a range of, of uh, ideological and political uh, traditions. One of which was the revolutionary one in its most uh, extreme form. I mean, the terrorist uh, version of of uh, Robespierre and and the Père Duchesne, but also. And this is very important: the the, the philosophy of, of Pierre Joseph Proudhon, and and the socialism of Pierre Joseph Proudhon. And there's another figure who's haunting the commune, and who actually, unlike Karl Marx, actually takes a risk and try to join in. And that's of course Bakunin, and the anarchist uh, tradition. And and in a sense, when we think about the commune, the, you can actually try to own the commune as a as a, a demonstration of, of, um, of theory of history uh, um, that would fit more or less with Marxism, or you can actually interpret it uh, like Bakunin did um, in his letters to a Frenchman uh, on the present crisis in 1871, where by actually a, a kind of liberation, a liberating moment, and a sort of uh, revolutionary. Uh, spirit an ebullition of, of revolution it's kind of interesting because of course the one of the great absent figures of the commune of paris is a is a major socialist uh, uh, french leader uh, blanqui and blanqui himself is a writer and he writes a very puzzling book 
after, while imprisoned after the Commune of Paris, which is l'éternité par les astres, eternity through uh, the stars, which is essentially, on the one way, actually, interestingly, a book about parallel universe or the possibility of parallel universe, but also a book on the um, inevitability of uh, revolutionary politics and that revolutionary politics is in itself and of itself an end. In other words, there is no post-revolution. There is the revolution, and that is it. And that's kind of that is actually quite a powerful idea if you think about potential interpretations later in the, the work of Trotsky or, or in other forms of, of socialism. So, so Karl Marx cast a shadow, but is by no means, I think, the dominant voice in that period or even in the immediate. Um, period. Uh, and the anarchists are, are very significant. Now, perhaps not so significant in the United Kingdom, but very significant in Southern Europe. Uh, Anarcho-syndicalism uh, is uh, a very powerful voice. And Bakunin did attempt to join the Commune, not the Commune of Paris, but the Commune of Lyon that preceded the Commune of Paris. Not terribly successfully, but at least he had the physical courage to put himself in arms way. Uh, it's very interesting, uh, I think, that we, we think about this, this this is a very fascinating moment in the history of the of left ideas because there are so many strands, so many different um, positions which which are really contesting the you know contesting and and, and jostling for for dominance in uh, in the in the in the international the socialist international. And I think we've got to to think about this this ebullition of ideas and the commune is at the heart of it because some of it takes place there. Some of it is about interpreting how the commune might fit into a broader historical understanding of uh, class struggle. Yeah, that's 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 exactly right. Um, and and I think you've you've captured very well, Bertrand, the, the, the ideological heterogeneity of the commune itself, right? It's not as if there was one current that had hegemony really within the commune, right? It was this coming together of neo-Jacobins, followers of Blanqui, there were members of the international, which is, you know, Marx was more heavily associated with the international, but there were followers of Proudhon as well. So it's this kind of strange mixing together of different views and positions. And of course, the, the communards never all agreed with one another. We can't really kind of, you, you know, the, they, they had to fight together behind the same barricades and some, in some cases, die together behind, behind the same barricades, but they were not all of one mind, the communards, politically speaking. Marx's daughters, I think, were in Paris at the time, so they had that courage to put themselves in harm's way. Mm. But but Marx was maybe getting a bit long in the long in the tooth by that. Point. So was Bakunin. So was Bakunin. Yes, yeah. No, that's, that's... <laughs> well. I mean, yeah. This this leads on to a few other things I want to talk about, and you know, as you've both um, pointed towards the kind of battle over the memory of the commune and how to historicize it. Um, one of the most famous uh, and I think most interesting um, contemporary accounts is, of course, Prosper Olivier Le Sagarai's book. History of the Commune of Paris of 1871, which is published in 1876 while the Sagarai is in exile and is translated into English in 1886 by his lover, Eleanor Marx. Uh, so there's a link there. But I actually want to shift the conversation on to someone else who was present um, during the Commune, um, but is, is not a figure of the radical left uh, necessarily. Um, and that's the novelist Emma Zola. 
who was um, in Paris as, as a journalist um, for a publication called Le Semaphore de Marseille. Uh, so he reported on the fall of the commune and was one of the first reporters to enter the city during the bloody week. Um, and um, on the 25th of May, 1871, he wrote that never in civilized times has such a terrible crime ravaged a great city. The men of the Hotel de Ville could not be other than assassins and arsonists. They were beaten and fled like robbers from the regular army and took vengeance upon the monuments and houses. The fires of Paris have pushed over the limit, the exasperation of the army. Those who burn and those who massacre merit no other justice than the gunshot of a soldier. Uh, but his tone changed after the fighting was over. And he wrote, the court martials are still meeting and the summary executions continue, less numerous, it's true. The sound of firing squads, which one still hears in the mournful city, atrociously prolongs the nightmare. Paris is sick of executions. It seems to Paris that they're shooting everyone. Paris is not complaining about the shooting of the members of the commune, but of innocent people. It believes that among the pile there are innocent people, and that it's time that each execution is preceded by at least an attempt at a serious inquiry. When the echoes of the last shots have ceased, it will take a great deal of gentleness to heal the million people suffering nightmares, those who have emerged shivering from the fire and massacre. So that's quite powerful stuff. And, you know, Zola, of course, is uh, widely regarded um, both for Jacques about the Dreyfus affair, which we don't have time to go into here, uh, but also for his Rougon Macart saga, his long saga of, of novels. I think there's 20 or so in the series, kind of capturing the, the attempt to capture the second empire in literature. Um, so Bertrand, I wondered if you could talk a bit about um, Zola's novel, uh, La Debacle, um, which doesn't spend that much time on the commune. It spends far more time on the Franco-Prussian War. Um, and maybe was this indicative of Zola sort of struggling to understand the commune or position himself in relation to it? Well, it's a little bit like Victor Hugo, uh, L'année terrible, uh, the terrible year. Uh, La Debacle is the culmination of a, a sequence of, of novels which are, uh, which are meant to expose um, the racial, social and cultural decline of, uh, of French society under the Second Empire. So it's a morality tale, if you think about it, about not only about degenerescence um, of, the, of the, the physical decay, of, 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 but the complete uh, decline of, of society. And it's very interesting that uh, if you think about uh, the sequence of novels, the final scene of Nana, which is about this uh, artist, so pre previous novel, um, an artist, a prostitute, or, or who dies of smallpox at the end of the novel. And when she dies, the last thing she hears is to Berlin, to Berlin. And this is the announcement that, you know, she's herself the body of French society corrupted by vice. I mean, of course, it's smallpox, not pox, but everybody reads pox, not smallpox in that particular scene. And um, La Debacle is a natural follow on from that novel of physical decay, intellectual decay. And the figure of Napoleon is really quite significant in that novel because he is himself incredible. Napoleon III is himself um, almost dying as he leads the French armies. He, in fact, the, the man was in complete agony, had very little um, a little physical stamina. He was suffering from from um, stones that eventually killed him three years later. And he was actually 
the embodiment of a, a regime on the brink of collapse. Now, the commune narrative doesn't fit with this, this kind of over, overarching see, um, narrative, if you want, of, of decline. Now, what's interesting about La Debacle is when it's written, of course, because it's written in 1892 and it's published in 1892, it's actually immediately after the revival of an, a neo imperialistic figurehead, Boulanger, and if you want, the temptation of um, the strong man. So there was in the 1889, there is a brief moment where the French Third Republic, which is rocked by a, a number of scandals, sleaze, we will use the word today, um, is actually threatened and uh, by a general who rides a beautiful black horse and allegedly the horse was considerably more showing more signs of intelligence than the rider and and this this character is perceived as a threat to the republic and uh, la debacle comes in if you want just after that the, after the, the boulanger episode as a kind of war i think i read it very much as that this is what you're going to get if you follow this kind of demagoguery. And, and it's a very interesting moment because the Boulanger moment is a moment where uh, some, uh, some, some forces in, in France are actually uh, shifting politics. So people like Rochefort, a communard, are, are veering to the right. You're starting to see the realignment of French politics, which of course will, will take place a little bit later during the Dreyfus affair. Okay, um, we've got just over 10 minutes left, so I'd like to um, spend um, a bit of time now um, talking about responses to the Commune in Britain. Uh, obviously, a number of, um, of Communards come to London um, and to the UK, um, and poetry in particular about the, the Commune and the Communards um, becomes a kind of strand in the decade or two after the bloody week and especially the commune. Um, so, Owen, I don't know if you'd like to talk a bit about some of the, the figures like uh, William Morris, Oscar Wilde, uh, Ruskin, Gerard Mandy Hopkins, um, who, who responded to the commune. Sure, yeah. Um, trying to decide where to start, really. I mean, Ruskin, not so much of a, a, a poet, but responding... Um, as the commune was unfolding really in a series of letters that he was ad addressing to British workers called Fours Clavigera. Um, and interestingly, Ru Ruskin of all people who's described himself as a violent Tory of the old school in his autobiography, but he's quite open-minded about the commune. And actually, interestingly, some of his comments dovetail with Marx is thinking about this paradigm of class antagonism because Ruskin writes in Fours Clavigera, um, the guilty thieves of Europe, the real sources of all deadly war in it are the capitalists. The real war in Europe of which this fighting in Paris is the inauguration is between these capitalists and the workmen such as they have made him. So quite a, a striking comment from Ruskin there. Um, he gets a little bit more unnerved about the commune when he reads these false reports about the burning of the Louvre and one would hardly want to call him a communard, but, but he's responding very honestly and openly to the commune as it's unfolding. You mentioned uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, uh, a poet who doesn't really, uh, his, his work is not published until 1918, but 
He's another one of these figures who responds quite interestingly to the commune as it's unfolding in a, a private letter to Robert Bridges. Um, and he's in training to be a Jesuit priest at the time and admits and writes to Bridges that he feels a certain kind of sympathy to the commune, for the commune, and that he's always thinking of the communist future and horrible to say in a manner, I am a communist. So there's a way in which this event of the commune, this, this unexpected revolutionary upheaval, throws certain kinds of fast fixed ideological self-identifications into a certain kind of confusion, because one would not expect figures like Ruskin and and Hopkins to respond to the commune in that way. So, so confusion might be a useful uh, word with which to think about the commune. But some of the later socialist writers, you mentioned Morris, um, were wanting to integrate the commune into a more of a kind of determined political culture where they were holding up the commune. They were mythologizing the commune, I think we would need to say, but for the purposes of uh, bringing into being and consolidating a political movement that they were seeking to build in, in, in the Britain of the 1880s, uh, as the socialist revival, as it's called, was, was getting on foot. Morris's poem, The Pilgrims of Hope, is perhaps the most obvious thing we might discuss with regard to a, a poetic commemoration of the commune within, within the socialist movement. And this is a 13-book narrative poem a little bit like Zola's novel that doesn't really get on to thinking about the commune until the very end, but Morris's protagonist goes to Paris, joins with the communards, fights with the communards, and interestingly, his unnamed wife and her lover both perish in, in the commune, uh, and the protagonist returns after this tragic defeat, this great sadness of not only the political defeat, but the loss of his 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 wife as well, um, but returns with a sense of determination that the commune is going to be something that he's he's going to memorialise and that he's going to celebrate. But if we think about the status of of, of Morris as a poet, um, a poet who was considered for the laureateship after Tennyson died, but he takes this turn and becomes a revolutionary communist during the eighteen eighties. But this poem of the commune that he writes is quite a turn in his in his poetry as well because it's it's blending that epic register that we would associate with Morris's translations of the Norse sagas, uh, Sigurd the Volsung and so on, blending that epic register of heroism with a certain kind of um, gritty revolutionary realism. So it's, it's, it's certainly an interesting poem that as I say was serialized in the Socialist League's Commonweal Journal, so part very much part of a live political culture. But if I've got time to just say something perhaps about a figure who uh, isn't, we wouldn't necessarily immediately connect up with the commune, the other figure you mentioned, Oscar Wilde. I would, Juliet, I was reading your, um, your article on Jacobin about Wilde, um, and um, there's not, I've not been able to find anything that Wilde directly writes about the commune but there are some interesting hints that we can follow. Um, Robert Sherrard, who writes a, uh, was a friend of Wilde, writes a book about Wilde um, called The Story of an Unhappy Friendship and notes there that, that Wilde was visiting Paris in 1882. And on passing the ruins of the, the palace, the Tuileries Paris that, that, that had been destroyed during the bloody week and was this kind of 
standing testament to the the, the violence of the commune, uh, this kind of unwitting memorialization of the insurgency into the very fabric of the city. And Sherard reports that Wilde passes the palace and reports Wilde's comment that he saw every little charred brick as being a chapter in the Bible of democracy. So what can this be other than a celebration of, of the commune on Wilde's part? And a celebration in a sense of the political violence that went along with it. Wilde, very interesting kind of somewhere between a, a, an individualist anarchist and a radical Christian. Um, well, well he, he's not really a radical Christian, but there are ways in which in his essay, The Soul of Man Under Socialism, he's moving on to thinking about a certain way in which a figure like Christ might be uh, the, the, the ultimate epitome of a political rebel. And I mention this because in Wilde's Sonnet to Liberty, written around the same time as his visit to Paris, he's uh, the speaker of that sonnet is invoking these Christs that die upon the barricades. Now, he doesn't specifically mention the barricades of the commune, but he's celebrating Christs that die upon the barricades. And a speaker, the speaker of this poem is also identifying with revolutionary terror after a fashion as well. So some interesting hints that we can follow with Wilde, and he's, he's doing the same thing in The Soul of Man Under Socialism, of course, and celebrating the nobility and heroism of the barricade there too. And any writing about barricades in the wake of the commune cannot but invoke the commune. And if we were to follow through um, that, that kind of radical Christian appropriation of the commune, then another writer we might think about briefly is Eliza Lynn Linton, who writes a very interesting novel called The True History of Joshua Davidson, Christian and Communist. And her protagonist, Joshua Davidson, is a carpenter, of all things, who tries to live as if he were Christ in the 19th century. And Linton's Christ figure also goes to Paris and fights with the communards, very interestingly doesn't die fighting with the commune, but comes back to Britain and is kicked to death by some rather more conservative Christians who think he's the devil incarnate because he's wanting to identify uh, the commune with, with the figure of Christ. So there, is, there are quite a number of, um, I mean, this is just scratching the surface, but there are quite a number of very interesting uh, British translations of the commune, the ways in which there are, the, the commune is culturally translated into, into British culture um, in the late 19th century. And so, well, I've, I've spoken about some of them. <laughs> yeah, and we've um, we've only got a couple of minutes left. So Bertrand, I don't know if there's anything that you wanted to well, add to that. Yeah, I think the, the myth, why is there a myth? And I think that, that there, there's a simple, there's a series of complicated answers to a simple question. But one of them, in my view, is that the communards, first of all, are repressed with extraordinary brutality. So the, the sacrificial nature of the commune, including the, the massacre of the very young, there's a lot of images of, of extremely young communards, uh, teenagers, children. Um, and they are massacred en masse, and this is a, a, an outrage in, in, in its form and in, in the volume of, of killings. And the second point is that an awful lot of communards are then arrested um, and some of them deported. And in this exile, this deportation, this prison time, they write themselves the history of their commune and uh, their own history. And some of these figures, like Louise Michel, uh, whom we haven't mentioned yet, but who, who actually uh, uh, was given the, the, you know, the, the, 
the maternity of, of, of the black flag of anarchy, um, Louise Michel indeed uh, becomes the embodiment of, of this revolutionary spirit of the commune. And with all its complexities, including its gender politics. And I think the commune opens up many, many doors. And, and today, when the commune ends, um, the commune is uh, celebrated usually in May uh, in Paris. There's usually at least two demonstrations that meet, sometimes fight each other. The anarchists with their black flag, the communists with their red flags, both of which um, can relate directly to the commune of Paris. But what I find fascinating is that today there is, a, uh, if you want, a recollection of, of the Commune of Paris floating somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea. The ship that Banksy actually um, uh, paid for um, to rescue people at sea is called the Louise Michel. So I think we have here an example of how an idea refuses to die. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way of putting it and a really nice place to bring our conversation more or less to a close. Although I do want to mention that, of course, the commune continued to fascinate, as you say, throughout the 20th century, uh, whether it was in films by Grigory Kosintsev and Leonid Trauberg, uh, The New Babylon in the early Soviet Union, I think comes out in 1929. There's a famous story about Lenin apparently dancing in the snow when the, um, the USSR outlasted the Paris Commune. Uh, and of course, Lenin writes in The State and Revolution about some of the lessons that might be learned from the Commune. Um, and then there, to the end of the 20th century, there are films by Ken McMullen and Peter Watkins. Um, but I wanted to maybe close here um, with the situationist theorists Guy Debord, uh, Attila Catani, and Raoul Van Eyham, uh, who wrote their theses on the Paris Commune and published them in March 1962. Um, and they wrote that it has been easy to make justified criticisms of the commune's obvious lack of a coherent organizational structure. But it is time that we examine the commune, not just as an outmoded example of revolutionary primitivism, but as a positive experiment whose whole truth has yet to be rediscovered and fulfilled. Um, 150 years later, I think that's, that's still true. Um, and I hope that our conversation today has shed some more light on it. So um, Owen, Bertrand, thank you so, so much for joining me today. Thank you. And um, listeners, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, listeners, I've been your host, Juliet Jakes, uh, here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Um, we will be back at the same time in the same place next month. So see you then. All right. Take care. Goodbye. <laughs>